If you have been to DFW and to the airport, then you know that as soon as you arrive to the airport, you are met by this monstrosity. You arrive there, and you can't just get into the airport. You have to pass through a gate. Now, if you come from a small town like I do in Chattanooga, where you practically park right in front of the gate, this was immensely intimidating because there's just a lot of choices. All I wanted to do was to get to the airport, and you arrive to these multi-lane gates where you get to choose which path they're going to take. And each one's a little bit different. One is toll tag only. One is toll tag or credit card. One is credit card. And, and then for a while there was a cash lane. And you got to choose which lane you wanted to go through. But at the end of the day, it didn't really matter which gate you chose. All the gates led to the same destination. All lanes led to the same place. Is that how it is with God? Is that how it works with the Lord? You know, you kind of do what you want to do. You believe what you want to believe. You live how you want to live. You practice what you want to practice. You worship how you want to worship. You belong to whatever church you want to belong to. In the end of the day, all roads lead home. They all lead to heaven. Even in terms of salvation, you do what you want to do. You do what you want to do. And so if you want to be baptized, you be baptized. If you want to say a prayer, just say a prayer. If you want to just acknowledge some things in your heart that you're feeling, you do so. It doesn't really matter because all roads lead home. You know, Ricky and I did not plan our, our sermons out this morning, but the Lord wove them together because his excellent lesson at 9 o'clock talked about sincerity. Is sincerity enough? Is it really? So long as you're sincere, I really believe in God. I'm sincere about this path and this decision. Is that enough for us to be saved? The problem with that thinking is passages like 2 Timothy 2 and verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. What does Paul say? Showing up doesn't mean you're going to win the race. Just running doesn't mean you're going to get the prize. It's not like in today's mentality, you show up and everyone gets a trophy, everyone gets a participation award. That doesn't cut it with heaven. You notice that word in red, it's a conditional word, unless, unless, unless you follow the rules, unless you do what God says, then you're not going to receive the prize. It's fascinating how often that word appears in the New Testament, unless, Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will, not, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or in Matthew 18, and verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or as he was talking to Nicodemus in John 3, and verse 3, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So I think it becomes clear on the board. No, all roads obviously don't lead home. Not all roads, not all paths, not all beliefs, not all practices are going to lead to eternal life. There is a way God has prepared. There is a way that God has given for man to be saved. And the question for us we're going to explore today is, well, what is that way? What is that way? Because there seems to be a lot of ways. There seems to be a lot of choices. There seems to be a lot of beliefs and teachings. How do I know which way leads to eternal life? We're going to the book of Exodus chapter 25 to find that answer. We're going back a long, long time ago and a covenant far, far away to look at something that God put in place. God showed us something. He showed his people, but he has shown us if we were just paying attention. He showed what it means, how it is that someone can draw near to him. And the way he did it was through the commandment about this special tent called the tabernacle. See, something special was lost. 
When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they lost something special. And it wasn't just living in the garden, and it wasn't just access to the tree of life. They lost being able to be in the presence of God. That was removed, and it never was fully met again. It really wasn't restored again. But then we come to Exodus 25, and the people of Israel have, have been rescued from Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land, and God is giving commandments for his people to make a nation out of them, a holy nation out of them. And in Exodus 25, it says in verse 8, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so you shall construct it. I love that phrase in verse 8, that I may dwell among them. The people of Israel were on the move. They were living in tents. And God says, I want to live with you. I want to live among you. And so make me a mobile home. Make me a portable tent. I'm going to dwell where you dwell because I'm going to be in your midst. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 11 says the same thing. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So when they saw this tent... When you saw the tabernacle, the tabernacle represented the presence of God. This is God in our midst, the presence of God among us. Now, if you got the note card, I gave you a little outline. Let's just rehearse a little history about that special tent, and you'll see where we're going along the way. That tent, that special tent, had an outer wall. There was an outer boundary around the tabernacle. It was 150 feet long, give or take, 75 feet wide, and about seven and a half feet tall. And so that curtain acted as a boundary around the tabernacle area. There was a 30-foot wide door to the east. You ever notice that? Where did God put the door? To the east. When God planted a garden, he put it to the east. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, the cherubim was stationed in the east. The way to the presence of God begins in the east. There may not be anything more to that. I just thought it was fascinating. It's all in the east. The first thing when you entered into the tabernacle compound is that you would find the bronze altar. That is the place where the offerings and the sacrifices would be made. The priest would be making them on that altar. God gave them in Leviticus 17 and verse 11, through his grace, blood for the sacrifice of sins, for the atonement of sins. And Leviticus 17 and verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. They would sacrifice the animals, the lambs and the goats for their sins, for their sins to be forgiven. And there was a statue that would say that the fire was never going to go out. It was always going to be burning. Leviticus 6, verse 12 and verse 13. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and burn it, uh, burn it on it the fat of the peace offering. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So the beginning place. Right at the door is this ever-glowing altar, the smoke ever-burning. There was this presence of the sacrifice of the way to be right with God. Right behind the altar was this basin, this bronze basin that was filled with water. And the purpose of this basin was that the priests would wash and cleanse themselves before they would enter into the tabernacle to perform their work and worship before the Lord. And so in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 19 through 21, And Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it, 
when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water they may not, that they may not die, or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up it, and smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 21, so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they may not die. Moms, don't we want to hang that on your bathrooms? Wash your hands, wash your feet that you may not die. There's a presence. They're going to wash before they go in. There's a cleansing They're not going to be into the presence of the Lord unclean, defiled, impure. And so there's a sacrifice. There's a place to be cleansed. And then there was the tent, the tent itself. The tent was much smaller than the compound. It was 45 feet long by about 15 feet wide. And it was separated by, into two rooms by a thick, a thick, thick curtain. We might call the veil. Two rooms. The first room, when you entered into the tabernacle from the east was called the holy place. On the north of the holy place was a bread, a table that housed the bread. The bread was baked into 12 loaves, two loaves. It's called in in some passages in Leviticus the, the bread of presence or the presence bread. So there were 12 loaves that would be put out every Sabbath day on on the table. It says in Leviticus 24 and verse 5, Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food, offerings of perpetual dew. And so they would offer and eat and prepare this bread every Sabbath day. That was to the north of the tabernacle. On the south side, there was a golden lampstand, a golden lampstand made from from seven branches. Each of the branches had its own leaves and, and, and buds. It looked like a blooming almond tree is what it really pictured. And they kept this lamp burning all the time, perpetually. They would trim it in the morning, they'd trim it in the evening, and it really just served a functional purpose because in there, you cannot see. It's thick curtains. In fact, the tabernacle is covered with curtains on top of curtains on top of curtains. And so the lamp provided a sense of light and warmth and presence so they could see what it is that they are doing. And obviously, there's rich spiritual tones to the presence of God and light. And so it says in Exodus chapter 27 and verse 20 that you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may be regularly be set up to burn. And the tent of meeting outside the veil, that is, before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. And so there was the lampstand. One more piece in that outer room, in that holy room, just before the veil to the west was the altar of incense. The altar of incense, this, this bronze altar, was where they would offer fragrant incense that would fill the entire tent with a very impressive, well-smelling smoke. And so in Exodus 30 and verse 6, it says, You shall put in front of it the veil that is above the ark of the testimony and in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Every morning, every evening, the smoke is filling the tabernacle, the presence of God, as they are offering this fragrant aroma to the Lord. Then beyond the veil, in the final room in this tabernacle, the room is called the Holy of Holies. And only one thing was allowed in that room, and that was the Ark of the Covenant, that special little golden box. That box was so special because to the people, the tabernacle represented the presence of God. But the reason the tabernacle represented the presence of God was because the Ark of the Covenant was inside the tabernacle. Because when they saw the Ark, 
when they saw that special golden box, they saw God. Exodus 25, verse 22. There I will will meet with you, and from, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. They saw the box, they saw God. They saw the ark, it is the presence of God. In fact, many people throughout the Old Testament refer to the ark as the footstool of God, as if God is sitting in heaven and he rests his feet on the ark. And so David referred to that in 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 2, the ark of the covenant of the Lord for the footstool of our God. And that helps us understand then when in Psalm 99 they come to worship at the footstool of God. They would come to the temple, or at this time the tabernacle, to praise the Lord. They would worship at his footstool. On top of it, you would have the box, and you see it up on the picture, you would have the box. The lid of the ark had these golden cherubim, both of them facing each other, but both of them facing down. Isn't that fascinating? God is residing. They're not, they're not looking up to God. They're bowing down in reverence to God. And that lid of the tabernacle, that lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. Because once a year, only the high priest would come beyond the veil into this holy of holy place. He would bring the blood of an offering and he would sprinkle it on that lid sprinkling it for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. It was a place atonement was made. Forgiveness was found. Blood was received, and God was pleased. There's a lot of details, isn't there? In fact, it's not just that there's a lot of details. Did you notice in our passage in Exodus 25 and verse 9 how specific God is to them following the details? Exodus 25, verse 9, it says, According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so shall you construct it. If any of you have built a home, you have made that same statement to your builders. I laid out the blueprint. I told you what I want. Follow it. That's what I want. Don't go off the grid. Don't go creative. Don't be innovative. I showed you what I want. Do it. Follow the blueprint. This was instilled in the mind of Moses. I've shown you what I want. Don't veer from the path. So much so that in Acts 7, when Stephen is looking backwards, that's what he mentions. He says, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Why? Why Why was God so particular? Because there's a lot of details. We didn't spend the time because it would take a long time. There are 50 chapters of the Bible devoted to all the details about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, if you add it up, was among the people of God for 500 years. There's a lot of significance to this. Why was God so particular? Why was God so strict about the regulations and rules and design about the tabernacle? Well, in in one sense, we can understand it because it's a holy place. That word... And Exodus 25 and verse 8 says, sanctuary, a sanctuary means a holy place. This is where God's going to dwell. And if I'm going to be among you, I'm not letting you determine what that looks like. I'm not letting you set the standard for the people and all the nations to show what I look like, to portray my holiness. I'm going to set the standard. I'm going to set the measure. In fact, in your Bibles, go over to Exodus 29. Listen to how God would say that himself. Exodus 29 in your Bibles. Exodus 29, verse 44, 
He says, I will consecrate, uh, consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and the sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. When they see this, they're going to see my holiness. They're going to see the deliverer. They're going to see me. And so I want this to be done a certain way. That reflects my glory. That reflects my holiness. Now, the other reason that God was so particular about following every single detail, all the details, the material used, the color of the materials, the number of hoops, how it was built, who was to build it, the reason God was so specific was because it wasn't about a tent. It was never just about building a tent. If he wanted them to build a tent, he would say, go for it. Get some canvas, get some wood, have fun. This was a lot more than just building a tent that would go with them. The, temp, the tabernacle represented a far greater spiritual reality. In our Bibles, we need to go back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, if you're with me. Hebrews chapter 8, let's just notice how their tabernacle was not really about the tent itself. It represented something far greater. Hebrews chapter 8 in our Bibles. Hebrews 8, in verse 1, the writer says this, The main point in what has been said is this, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Those who serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God that when he was to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Do you notice that in verse 5? It's a shadow. The old law, the priests, and even the tabernacle was a shadow. You know what a shadow is? There's a form of something. It looks like something, but it's not the real thing. How many of us have drawn our weapons, got our karate moves ready for a coat hanger? We think it's someone that has the form. It's not the reality. The tabernacle was a shadow of something greater, something of far more substance. Here's a question. You may be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with drawing near to God? We're right there. Okay, just, just, just stay with me. I promise this is going to, to come to a good conclusion. What is, this, is the tabernacle supposed to show us? What is it a shadow of? There's a lot of things we could say here because there's a lot of great, deep, spiritual truths represented in that tent. But I want to give you one, just one thing today. One thing that obviously I believe the tabernacle is to be revealing to us, and that is the tabernacle represented the presence of God. And when it shows us, how does man come to the presence of God? That's what the tabernacle is about. That's what God was trying to show his people then and us today. How does man come to the presence of God? How do we enter into a right relationship with him? Let's start with this. How did you enter into the tabernacle? There's one door. You can't go through the north. You can't climb under in the south. You can't sneak in in the west because if you did, you were punished. If you did, you could use, lose your life. There was one way, one door, one access. 
And as soon as you came in, as soon as you came in the door, what was the first thing you saw? What was the first thing you met? Was the altar. Was the sacrifice. Was the place where blood was shed. You think of that. The first thing they would saw was that immediate reminder that we are not close to God. Our sins have caused a separation between us and God. True to them and true for us as well. The fact that we even need a sacrifice is reminding us that we're not close to God and we're separated from him. And the fact that the very first thing they see is an altar is reminding us that our sin is deadly. Maybe we need more of that. We need more animals shed. We need more sacrifices offered. We need more blood among us to remind us of the fact that sin is deadly, that sin is destructive. The sin comes with a great cost because the first thing they would see is that blood-stained altar. The first thing they would see is the animal burning, its carcass going up before the Lord. That's the first thing they would see. But it also is a sign of grace because God allowed them, as he allows you and I, the opportunity to be forgiven through blood. According to the law, the Hebrew writer says, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so he gave blood. And for years, it was the blood of lambs. It was the blood of bulls. It was the blood of goats. But for you and I today, that's where it all begins, isn't it? If I want to approach God, the first place it starts is a sacrifice for my sins to be forgiven. It's something to pay the debt that I have, I have occurred through in my own life. And here is Jesus Every high priest, writer says, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. What's he saying? Lambs and bulls and goats, killing them to take away sins, it's like paying monopoly money against a great debt. It's not, it's not the same. But in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He offered himself. Himself, as John would say, as that atoning, propitiation sacrifice. The one that takes away the sin, not just for us, but for all people of the whole world. So that through the blood of Jesus, through the blood of the Lamb of God, we may be freed from our sins. Where does the path back to God begin? It begins with a sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Lamb. Well, the next thing you would come to is the basin. The basin for cleansing. There had to be a removal of stain and sin and filth to be in the presence of God. A washing had to take place. You're already there with me. There's language all through the New Testament that describes how baptism is a washing. Wash away your sins, Ananias would say in Acts 22 and verse 16. Now, we're not washing our bodies. It's not removing the stains of our hands and our feet today as it was in the priest. Because Peter would say that that's not what it's about. Baptism is not about taking a bath and removing the stains of the flesh. It's not, as he would say, a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A cleansing of the sin, a washing of the soul, a purifying of the heart. You get that language, taking away the filth so we can be pure and right in the presence of God. Paul uses the same language in Colossians 2. And him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You hear that? What was bad, what was evil, what was sinful, he has removed it. He has taken it away. He has separated it through baptism. Are you there with me? You made it up. But then we have a passage like Hebrews 10 where we see the altar and the basin. The sacrifice and the cleansing. 
listen, listen. See what God has been showing us through all these years. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That last phrase is essentially 1 Peter 3.21. Our bodies are washed in water and our hearts are washed clean from sin and its guilt. Do you see it? The sacrifice and the cleansing. The blood and then the washing. How do you draw near? There had to be a sacrifice and there had to be a cleansing to be drawn near. Jesus' blood, our obedience to that gospel call and being baptized. And then what happens? We obey the gospel. We were baptized. What then happens? What's next? You were sent on your way. Enjoy your life on earth. No, we are adopted into his family. We are children of God. But Peter says more than that, we have now been made a royal priesthood. The only ones who could go into the tabernacle to serve and offer worship and work were the priests. And you and I who obey Christ Jesus today are now his priests, the royal priesthood. We are a people who every day are sustained on the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, Jesus says. If anyone who eats of this bread and will live forever, and the bread that I will give for, for life of the world is my flesh. Or you might say, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are sustained on the bread of life. We are led by the light of the world. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or as John would say, we are walking in the light as he is in the light. We might think of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Sustained by the bread of life. Led by the light of the world. And then, now this one gets a little tricky. What about the incense? You know, there's a, there's a fascinating picture in the book of Revelation. When in Revelation chapter 5 it says, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I mean, imagine that if you were to describe prayer by a word picture, what would you use? It's kind of hard to picture, isn't it? But have you ever thought about incense? We burn it here and we light it here and the smoke rises and rises and rises up there. Or even in the tabernacle, it is lit on the one side of the veil, but that smoke goes beyond where man himself can't even be, but God is there. And the language of Cornelius, he stared at him, the angel in terror, saying, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Do you hear the language? Like smoke rising? So can you get the picture if I put it up there? To come near to God, to draw near to God. I'm wrong with God. I'm outside the camp, but I want to be right with God again. What must one do? Well, there had to be a sacrifice for sins, and there has to be cleansing. And then as a child of God, I'm allowed into a special place, a special relationship where I can worship God. And there I'm sustained by the bread of life. And there I am led by the, by the light of the world. And there I draw near to God through Jesus, the intercessor. I'm drawing near in my prayers, pouring forth everything on my heart to him. 
In your Bibles, let's go one chapter over to Hebrews chapter 9. And let's finish the picture. The writer in this section of Hebrews 9 is talking about the tabernacle. In fact, he says in verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And what he goes to follow is he talks about all those rules and regulations about the tabernacle. But notice what he says down in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol of the present time. The way into the holy place was not yet opened while the earthly tabernacle stood. So what happened? On that dark evening on Calvary, when the sacrifice was made for the sins of the world, from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, from God to man, the veil was torn and the way was made open and the way was prepared so that the Hebrew writer could say this hope we have, this hope you and I have that we sing about and we read about and we talk about, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where God himself is. It says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A forerunner, forerunner. A forerunner is someone who goes ahead of time, preparing the way with the expectation you're going to follow him there. And here is Jesus who has opened the veil. He has opened the way to the Father. And that's where he is now, at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. And he's just waiting because now the way is opened. It was 19, 1969, 1969, I looked this up. One of Frank Sinatra's most well-known songs was recorded in 1969. Oddly enough, you hear it a lot at funeral homes. It's called My Way. The tagline of the song, I did it my way. Do you know the song? I'm not going to sing it to you, My Way. If you had to put a philosophy, a mindset to the world today, is it not my way? I just want to do it my way. I don't care if you like it. I don't care if you agree with it. I'm going to do what I want to do how I want to do it. And so I'm going to say what I want to say. I want to dress how I want to dress. I want to date who I want to date and marry who I want to marry. I want to do what I want to do, and I'm going to do it my way. But the problem is when we're coming here to this, to this subject where it really matters the most and we're talking about God, my way doesn't cut it. Because I want to approach God on my terms the way I want to and my way. And so if I just want to believe in God, that's good enough for me. If I want to be a mediocre Christian and show up when I want to and that's good enough for God, that, that's, that's my way. If I want to not be baptized but say I'm still going to get in heaven, I mean all roads lead home. I'm doing it my way. Not all roads lead home. Not every way leads to eternal life. God showed us something amazing 
all those thousands of years ago. That he was working hard back then. He was working to prepare a way for his people to come back to him. So that was what was lost in that beginning, what was lost in that garden could be restored. He was making the way prepared. Because there is a way. There is one way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. There's one way, one road, and one path. So let me ask you today, are you on that way? Are you traveling that way? Are you pursuing God and the way that he has prepared? Have you sought Jesus and his blood, received his gift, turning from your sin? Have you been washed, baptized, starting your journey with him? putting your sin aside, being adopted into his family? Are you striving towards him? Are you living sustained and led and fueled by the word of God, by Jesus himself? Which way are you heading in life, good brethren? Because not all roads lead home, but God is offering to you a way, a way out, a way out of sin, a way out of death, a way out of disaster. Whatever it is you are in today, there is a way out, but that way is Jesus, and we would love to help you. If you're ready to start that journey today, let's do that. Let's do that today, and we'd love to help you start your, your walk with Christ. If you're here and you need some help, you need someone to talk with you or pray with you to get you back on that right way of a right relationship with God, whatever we can do today to help you, let's do it right now. Let's stand and let's sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.